humor that is racial or merely racial, as I call it, right, is humor that allows for these various interpretations that don't reinforce um, the tools that would allow you to imagine racial stratification, but somehow block or subvert them. And then humor that's racist is obviously the ones that broadly only allow for the interpretations that reinforce stratification. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, 54. And today I talk with Lavelle Anderson, who is a professor of philosophy at Syracuse University, where he largely works on the philosophy of language, the philosophy of race, and their intersection. He's the co-editor of the Routledge Companion to the Philosophy of Race and the soon-to-be-released Oxford Handbook of Applied Philosophy of Language. And the topic of our conversation today is an upcoming book or material surrounding the upcoming book on the philosophy of humor called The Ethics of Racial Humor. And we start out just pinning down what humor is and talking about whether or not this is really even possible. Uh, we talk about whether humor is a, is a distinctly human thing, which I would have supposed going into this conversation, but Lavelle convinced me otherwise, or at least he gave me good reasons to think humor isn't just a human thing. Then we talk about all sorts of different things in the humor universe. We talk about Dave Chappelle and some other Netflix specials. We talk about the distinction between racial and racist humor. We talk about horror and humor. The difference between laughing with and laughing at. Roasting ethics, ethics, uh, sexist humor, audience sensitivity. There are all sorts of things that we cover. And I should add, but before we dive into the episode, that, uh, again, I need to do these calls to action more often. But... I'm now on Twitter. You can follow me at Robinson Earhart. And it's always helpful if you leave comments, if you subscribe, if you give a thumbs up on YouTube or wherever you're watching this. And I also have this second show, Robinson Eats, on Twitch. So you should follow me there at Robinson Earhart because I'm on there every day in the morning, usually 15, 20 minutes, eating a pint of ice cream for breakfast. And I would love to talk with you geeselings about anything. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Lavelle. Well, you're actually the, the first philosopher I've ever encountered who studies the philosophy of humor. Sure. And so, so how did that it just become of interest to you? Yeah, that's a good question. So and there's two answers to this, really. So the first is that I've really always have been interested in humor from, I don't know how, it's always, I don't know, I can't see myself not having been involved with or interested in humor as a... Like comedy in that sense? Like comedy, sketch shows, uh comedic writing or satiric writing. Uh, humor was also kind of really a prominent feature of my family life too. And so okay. my parents are this, this 
really funny people and basically our interactions with one another, with me and my parents, my siblings, other family members is always through this kind of humorous lens. So this has this kind of natural place in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it became a thing that I considered a topic to write about or to think about philosophically when I was in grad school, actually. And so um, it was at the suggestion of one of my dissertation directors, Howard McGarry, that I read this paper uh, by, I think it was Michael Phillips on humor, on racist humor. And I started thinking about that, about sort of what makes racist humor. Could one give a theory of racist humor, stuff like that? And it became a kind of live philosophical issue for me. Uh, when, we, when we read through that paper, it became a chapter in my dissertation. And it was always something that I wanted to come back to in my career to write about and think about more. Got it. Well, so humor, comedy, jokes, I mean, there are all sorts of words that live in the I guess the general humor neighborhood and I'm guessing that like most other things or concepts in philosophy it's really difficult to give necessary and sufficient conditions for just what humor is yeah but on the first day of class when you're teaching this how do you explain to students I mean what they're getting into uh, and more broadly I mean what you think humor is yeah, so it's always, diff- I mean, one, it's kind of easy because humor is just the kind of thing that I think everybody has an opinion about and most yeah. people I think have a very strong opinion about. So it's not like some other topics that can be very abstract and it takes a while to get people to see sort of what's there. Uh, mm-hmm. In my like philosophy of humor course, for example, students just come in already having a very strong sense of what they take to be funny or not or what they take to be humorous or not. So I spend a fair amount at the beginning just trying to get them to say what it is they're already committed to so that we can have some things on the table that we all recognize. And there's a lot of overlap. So most people, at least most students that I've encountered, think of humor as this thing that you find amusing or that makes you laugh. Um they tend to think that humor is subjective or at least they tend to say that humor is subjective but then when when i start probing them on whether or not they can judge um some things funnier than others or whether or not you know there are certain issues or topics that are not funny or shouldn't be made a subject of humor they have opinions about that and so so then I sort of pull out this idea that, well, there might be something there that's objective-like that we can use to judge whether or not something should be fun, should count as funny, whether or not should, it should be, uh, it, it is an appropriate subject for humor, for a comedian, or for a sketch or something like that or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I start to sort of put on the table the idea that, yeah, there's this subjective-like thing that we usually normally attach to humor, but... There are also these underlying objective-like things that sometimes overlook that are also, I think, um, influencing our judgments about something's funniness. One of the words that you used that jumped out at me is amusement. 
So like you said, on the first day, you ask students what they find funny. And I think we, we, we all know what we find funny. Uh, we can all point to comedians or movies or jokes that we like. But there is still something that is different or particular about comedy that distinguishes it from, or humor that distinguishes it from amusement more generally. I mean, we can also very much tell the difference between the amusement we feel uh, when we're watching a comedy movie versus the amusement we feel when we're on a roller coaster. So uh, I guess what I'm wondering is what it is that distinguishes humor from other forms of amusement. Mm. Does it have any general characteristics in this way? Right. So so generally, I think amusement is understood to be a, a piece of humor. And so amusement is just an element of what makes something humor. So makes something an instance of humor. Uh, so I think one way to think about the question is, well, what does amusement, what is amusement's role in defining something as humor? And so it sort of depends here on whether or not you think of amusement as something that's kind of like an emotional, um, sorry, something that's a, um, like an emotion or something like that or not. And so different people have different takes on this. Noel Carroll thinks of amusement as a kind of emotion. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Whereas um, John Morial thinks not. So Morial has his arguments about amusement, not satisfying various things that emotions usually reflect. And Carroll refutes that. Um, for the most part, the amusement, I think, um, is sort of like a base, right? So it's a kind of experiential component that's included in instances of humor. Um, but that allows you for a kind of variety of responses, a kind of a variety of ways of expressing it. Right? So I think usually people attribute humor, associate humor with, let's say, very visible expressions of laughter or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously you can also be amused by something and not sort of be affected in this way where you're prone to, you know, laugh out loud or something like that. You can be amused, but it seems like privately, for example, right? Or mm-hmm. you, might, you might demonstrate that with a smile or a smirk. Mm-hmm. Um but the thing that's sort of constant across all those kinds of expressions is this experience. And so I guess the part thing is, well, how does amusement hook up with other things we think trigger these kinds of experiences or these responses? And I guess the prominent view right now is that it's basically a recognition of incongruities of a particular sort. And so you recognize incongruous elements in some object, um, that triggers certain kinds of processes might trigger a kind of reinterpretation of this incongruity that you've been been confronted with that causes you to reinterpret it in a way that makes sense of this thing that's insensible or insensible or something like that. Um, and that's part of what explains why is you have this experience of amusement or mirth uh, and you demonstrate it with laughter or smiling or whatever. Um, but in general, amusement is a kind of sub- substance or a base of yeah, yeah. Human, like kind of experience yeah. base or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned when I asked how you got into humor that it started in, well, 
philosophically speaking, it started in graduate school. When I was looking at some of your past work, I saw that your thesis, your first couple of papers were on slurs and hate speech. And then from there, it went into your writing turned into, or you started writing more about humor. What was the connection between these two? What was, what was sort of some of your foundational work in the slurs and hate speech? Yeah. Initially, I probably looked at it like what basically I was looking at the different uses of racial language in different contexts. Uh, in particular, racist language or language that is conventionally viewed as racist and seeing what difference context makes to how we engage with it or interpret it. And mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of the, dis- half of the dissertation at least was on uh, the semantic and the semantics and ethics of racial slurs. And so the theory of racial slurs is paper now that's sort of famous with um, that I co-wrote with Ernie Lepore and slurring words. We go through various views about yeah. what explains the offensiveness of these expressions. Um, uh, well, before we go on, could you yeah. say a little more about what explains the offensiveness of these expressions? I'm curious. Yeah. So Ernie and I had this view that was really an outlier view because uh, at the time, so this is I guess when we started writing on this, there hadn't been a lot written on uh, the semantics of racial slurs before. I think there are a couple of papers by people like Jennifer Hornsby and <laughs> Lynn Terrell, uh, Catherine Wearing, where they wrote about semantics of racial slurs or, or racial epithets. And a lot of the attempts had been to fit it basically into extant views uh, in semantics and philosophy language around trying to figure out what how content was somehow explaining the offensiveness of the slurs. That basically racial slurs mean something different than mm-hmm. what we might regard as their neutral counterparts. Um, whether or not that content is expressed directly in its assertive or assertive content or whether or not it's somehow presupposed or whether or not it's kind of inferential thing, something along these lines, or it's conventional implicature or something like this, right? And what Ernie and I suggest is that it has not really nothing to do with any of these things. That what explains the offensiveness of racial slurs is that quite simply they're prohibited expressions. And it's the violations of those prohibitions that explains people's offensive reactions, offended reactions to them. Right. Okay. So we try to give a more social, social linguistic spin, uh, highlighting mm-hmm. their use, right? Highlighting the, the social dynamics of the, the expressions more so than their content. And then you you mentioned that in your thesis, I think you were looking at racial slurs in or interpretations of racial slurs in various contexts, and yes, I imagine then that humor is going to be a very a particularly interesting context because things aren't treated at face value the way that they might be in just everyday speech and you kind of have to explain you have to explain that and how we're supposed to look at racial slurs in these contexts is that roughly That's exactly right. Okay. right because some of the 
I guess some of the responses you might think um, a person would put forward to explain, for example, why we should think uh, a comedian's use of slurs in a set shouldn't be interpreted in the same way that you would interpret those same expressions in a more straightforward context or whatever. Um, might not work for other things, right? So here I'm thinking about, for example, use comedian using slurs in a set or uh, let's say what you might regard as linguistic reclamation, appropriation. So when groups who are targets of slurs sort of reappropriate them in a way to try to defang them or something like that, right? Defang them on their points of power, at least amongst themselves. Um, so we tried to argue that w- with respect to appropriation, it can't simply be that the speaker intends to use it in this sort of neutral or friendly way um, that obviously doesn't work sociolinguistically, right? Um, so why would... I don't know why that would work, for example, in the comedic context too. It's like, why should we accept that there? And so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, their very presence and also the social linguistic data that, well, it looks like generally some caveats, of course, implied, but but generally people seem to accept or have more latitude towards comedians using these expressions in those contexts than they would outside of those contexts. So it's a kind of interesting and um, sort of puzzling phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The this thought might not be entirely coherent, but as far as I'm aware, humor is a uniquely human phenomenon. I, I mean, I have the sense that maybe chimpanzees laugh, uh, but I'm not. I'm not totally sure. But humans have this unique ability for. engaging in pretense and maybe chimpanzees can too but i'm thinking of literature in developmental child psychology where at a certain age like a child or you can pick up a banana in front of a child and hold it to your ear and start talking and the child will just understand that you're not actually talking to a banana you're you're pretending that it's a phone and it's some something similar is going on in comedy where somebody on the stage can say something that in other contexts would be entirely offensive, but we have the ability to interpret it as a form of pretense. And again, that's so giving a sort of maybe semantics isn't the right word, but a way of understanding how we interpret that pretense um, is going to be challenging and interesting now when you started oh you can go ahead oh yeah i was just gonna um so i guess <laughs> raise some doubt about whether or not human is dis- uh, humor is distinctively human um, oh, there are at least some questions about that so there are uh those who have been researching um what they might regard as appearances of humor in non-human animals um so there have been some studies on rats, for example, that look like when the uh, researcher, I guess, tickled them or whatever, uh, <laughs> that gave this kind of laughing expression. Um, yeah. And there's some other stuff with primates and, and other, uh, I think in dolphins as well. Um, 
where it looks like there's something like a humorous thing happening there, which if you take a particular kind of theory of humor as sort of as a version of play, it looks Uh like there's play in non-human communities or non-human animal communities. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And so that actually puts some pressure on, let's say, very cognitive theories of humor that require Mm -hmm. very high level cognitive um, goings on to understand humor. Uh, not only with respect to non-humans, but also with respect to, to the very, the very young, like very young children or infants who also seem to gain the capacity for humorous play at a very young age before those cognitive abilities develop, the high-level yeah. cognitive abilities develop. No, that that connection um, to humor and between humor and play is really important. I'm glad you pointed that out because I mean my dog and I will chase each other around and presumably we're mimicking some sort of uh, predator prey relationship, but he doesn't, he clearly understands that that's not what's going on or the same thing with my cat where we are engaging in some sort of proto humor pretense, maybe. Now you mentioned uh, one of your advisors pointing you to a paper by Michael Phillips, but before you started working on the philosophy of humor, was there a lot of work already out on it? A lot of literature? There hadn't been really. Um, so I think John Morial was very, he did a lot really to sort of um, yeah, so I can say he he had he had a lot to do with sustaining a kind of a sustained philosophy of humor uh, in the literature, but there hadn't really been a lot written on it. I think it's one of those, coincidentally, it's one of those subjects that I guess didn't really receive a lot of serious philosophical attention. Or it wasn't, I guess, it wasn't thought that it deserved a lot of sustained philosoph- serious philosophical attention. It, Similar way that the slurs hadn't really been written on a lot. Or there, there are a couple of people, there are a few people here and there, but there's, there wasn't a serious, sustained sort of philosophical attention to it. Um, I think there are starting to be more and more people thinking and writing about humor philosophically uh, in the same way that slurs has sort of blown up into this sort of cottage, cottage industry now. So I think more and more attention is being turned towards it. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, especially when I wrote this chapter in the dissertation, this is 2010, 2011, I guess. Um, at that point, there just wasn't a lot to draw from in the philosophy literature on, on the subject. Mm-hmm. Well, you do, you do have a paper on racist humor. I mean, it's a, it's called racist humor. So that, that gives the, the subject away. But in that paper, you talk about some of the theories of, of race, the extant theories of racist humor before giving some criticisms of them. But what are in general, or some of, some of the theories of racist humor, racist humor that are out there? Yeah. So I basically gave three primary views of, uh, about how it could go. Like one was this view based on beliefs or what I call the doxastic view. 
And so that basically racist humor is humor that expresses racist beliefs, something basically simply like that. And or you could have a view that basically racist humor amounts to ill will or ill attitudes, or attitudes of disregard. And so that um, sort of the motivating attitude behind telling a joke, a racial joke. Sure. Is one so when a, a racist individual is is telling a joke amongst his friends, like criticizing or a, about yeah. some group of people, something okay. like that. Okay. Or even this, this person that doesn't show the proper regard for the target, qua their status as a member of racial group X or whatever, <laughs> um, and that somehow the the motivating attitude that infects the act. Or you could take a sort of probably consequentialist view. So that if you can reasonably expect that your humor object, let's say telling a joke, um, will produce an environment in which it harms a person because of their racial group membership, uh, then that counts as racist. And I suppose what I try to say in, in that paper or suggest is that, well, there's no reason to take any one of these views as exhaustive in itself. And in fact, if you do, then you end up missing out some stuff that you probably want to count. Um, so we should take a, a more hybrid approach. Um, that was sort of an earlier instance, the earlier opinion I had about how to think about this stuff. I've since, I guess, modified that view some, where I now try to think about the the social cultural setting in which these sorts of speech acts happen and that mm -hmm. we have to take into account these dynamics of, uh, you know, power stratification and how we can reasonably expect, um, what we can expect speech acts of this type to do in terms of, okay, how does it affect its audience's imaginations? Or how can we expect it to affect its audience's imaginations or imaginative capabilities? Mm -hmm. I say provide them a way of interpreting the joke in such a way that it doesn't sort of reinforce uh, those tools that contribute to racial stratification. Or does it allow for interpretations that at least do no harm, but also may subvert those tools of stratification? And that latter seems like it would more have more of a positive valence to That's right. the prior. And before we go any further, is there a, an important distinction? I assume that there there probably is, though the the line might be blurry between humor that is racial in subject matter and humor that is racist. Yeah, so there is at least I think there is. Um, so in my view, humor that is racial or merely racial, as I call it, right, is humor that allows for these various interpretations, um, that, <coughs> excuse me, don't reinforce, um, the tools that would allow you to imagine racial stratification, but somehow block or subvert them. Um, and then humor that's racist is obviously the ones that sort of 
broadly only allow for the interpretations that reinforce stratification. And this this sort of answers one question that I had was if there is any racist humor that is not wrong or morally wrong. And I think the answer to that is no, but there is racial humor that is not obviously wrong. Is that okay? It does sound right. Now I do have another question. So I've talked with Richard Kimberly Heck of Brown a number of times on the philosophy of sex and pornography and in one of our conversations, we talked about the ethics of sexual fantasies and whether or not it was like immoral to have rape fantasies, things like that. And yeah. I do wonder then, there's a sort of a, a parallel between racist humor. In yeah. if there is no one to hear the joke, like if a racist joke is told in a forest or something like that, or if it's internal, or if it's told amongst people none of whom are the target of the joke is it still wrong how do you go about answering that question yeah so it's a tough question because it again it's going to depend on where you put the focus and this i think just sort of brings us back to a discussion about what we consider racism itself to be Mm -hmm. So racial humor or whatever is just going to be an, an instance an instance of this sort of general thing, racism. And there are kind of two ways to think about racism. You can think about it at this individual and a personal level, right? or you can think about it at what I'll call the political level. So at the individual and interpersonal level, it's really about interactions between individuals or something like that. And here we're talking about um, either the nature of the acts themselves or the characteristics of the individuals involved. So going back to like the attitudinal view where what makes some act or speech or whatever racist is that it comes from this ill will, attitude of ill will or disregard. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, or the nature of the act and so that if uh, the acts themselves end up be harmful, wrongfully harmful, then that's sort of what determines whether or not it's racist. Yeah. That racist racism basically has to do with uh, producing acts that are harmful because of a person's racial group membership. Right? Mm -hmm. um, there are some people who don't think that we should devote all of our attention to thinking about racism at the interpersonal level that perhaps what's primary or what's more important is, the, is racism at the political level. And so uh, at the level of institutions and structures and so forth. And here, the again, take a broadly consequentialist view. And so what are the, the outcomes of institutional policies or uh, the distributions of benefits and burdens of particular structures? Do they heavily advantage and disadvantage others based on racial group membership? That's what's sort of important for thinking about racism. Here again, I want to kind of hold a kind of middle view where I think that we should think both realms are important. Um, 
And so the answer to the question will basically depend on what level we are focusing on when we're having a discussion about racism. And that can be true of, and you can have this discussion about racist humor at both levels too. And so there's the, you know, the informal occasions where you have a group of friends telling jokes or just a group of private people telling jokes or whatever, and think about the nature of those interactions. But we can also think about it with respect to the political level when we're talking about, let's say, Netflix specials that go out to a wide audience and that might have sort of larger consequences, right? Um, so I think the question about which matters depends at depends on which level we're talking about, and we can talk about both levels with respect to racism, racism. Now, we've talked a lot about racist humor so far, and I and I think we're going to get back to it more. But something that we haven't talked about is sexist humor. And I'm wondering if sexist humor is different in important ways from racial humors. One uh, paper you cited with, with a with a very nice title was Mary Bergman's "How Many Feminists Does It Take to Make a Joke?" Sexist humor and what's wrong with it. So yeah. maybe we could start by talking about that paper and what the argument there or the point of the paper is. Yeah. So Bergman um, essentially has this view that what makes humor sexist <coughs> is whether or not in order to sort of recognize the incongruity that you're supposed to play with in order to be amused by requires you to take on this sexist perspective. Um that's what sort of makes the humor sexist. Right? So if you can't even recognize, in order to recognize the humor in the joke, you have to take on this perspective, and that's what makes the joke. Right. Right. Um, which I think is an interesting view, and I have some sympathy with it, actually, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that I think it gets at something that I'm trying to get at, which is the effect of jokes and humor on one's imaginative capacities. Mm -hmm. So what kind of mindset does it put you in? What kinds of commitments uh, do you have yeah. to like, take on, adopt or whatever in order to enjoy the fun of particular sorts of humors? Yeah. It's interesting that in a, in a sense, uh, I don't know if this is an, I think it might be an ancient idea, the, an, an idea from ancient philosophy that, I'm drawing on, but in entertaining and understanding some jokes, you may be sort of quote unquote um, corrupting your soul by inhabiting the position or taking on the position that is required to understand the joke. Um, you're, I don't know, polluting your moral faculties in some sense. Yeah. There's, um, so there's some pushback on Bregman too, with respect to this idea. Because that some thought right, that you yeah, can hear a joke, a racial joke, or um, a joke about gender. Doesn't mean I have to buy the commitments involved in the joke, or that you could attribute to the joke. Doesn't mean that I and I could help. 
I can find something amusing without committing myself to sexist and racist ideas. It's kind of the thought. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that goes back to the whole idea of pretense or that we have this capacity to like, I can pick up the banana and talk to it without uh, sort of making the ontological commitment to this being a phone, so, something to that effect. Right. But it does raise this question though, about uh, what kind of, so there's a question you could ask right, when it comes to, people's senses of humor, a person's sense of humor, and the kinds of things they find funny. So sometimes, yeah, you might be struck by the kinds of things a person finds funny that might cause you to ask the question, okay, well, what kind of person do you have to be in order to find something like that funny? And so mm -hmm. one example I use to try to, you know, with my students, this is an example I use. So there's this old series that used to be available on, I don't know, I think VHS. This is back in the day, like the 90s or something, uh, called The Faces of Death. And so Faces of Death basically was this <laughs> montage of video feeds and clips of people dying in various ways or death in various ways. Very brutal stuff, very live stuff. So I think I remember one, one clip had a person who was attempting to rob a, I think a salvage um, yard or something like that. So he had hopped the fence. Didn't notice that there were these two big, uh, I think they were Rottweilers actually, uh, sort of guarding the area. And he basically got mauled to death by these Rottweilers. So if a person watches stuff like this and finds it hilarious, well, you might reasonably ask, okay, well, what kind of person do you have to be in order to find something like that funny? Yeah. And you can ask the same thing about right, like sexist jokes. Well, there are some jokes that seem to be so virile or whatever. You might ask, okay, yeah, maybe in you might suggest that a person doesn't have to buy the commitments of the joke in order to find it funny. But you might think that there are some things that require kind of explanation for why you might find it funny uh, because it seems really, it's, it really seems clear that you have to adopt something like the perspective in order to find the thing, the funny in it. Mm -hmm. Earlier you mentioned Netflix specials. And while we're on the topic of sexist humor, racist humor, it seems worthwhile bringing up that you've cited a couple of papers that specifically reference Dave Chappelle and his comedy. And just first off, why is Dave Chappelle in particular of philosophical interest to these writers? Well, I think because he's just such a celebrated comedian. Mm -hmm. um, he is, I suppose, right, the generational counterpart to the, the Richard Pryors and the George Carlins mm -hmm. and the sort of these monumental figures in the comedic world, <coughs> very popular. So it's just a very, I think, um, 
kind of salient phenomenon to be examined because he's so celebrated. Mm -hmm. And because he's engaging in uh, this behavior that's controversial, but also seems to be quite popular too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it sort of raises questions that go back to Bergman's paper about uh, what's wrong with sexist humor. What position do you have to be occupying to find these funny, um, these jokes funny? So uh, maybe again, we should talk about a couple of the papers that reference him. And one is Mark Ralkovsky's Why You Can't Cancel Dave Chappelle. And mm-hmm. what's the answer there? Because I know that there have been, I, to call them attempts to cancel Dave Chappelle is maybe to put it sort of, pejoratively but there are clearly many people who don't want him to have a platform uh and who protest netflix or quit netflix etc etc because of um, what people think of as transphobic or otherwise sexist or racist jokes but what does ralkovsky think is the reason that we can't cancel or nobody can cancel dave Chappelle? so if I remember correctly, I think Mark thinks there's a kind of heroicism or something along those lines that people are living through vicariously or something like that. And so that we essentially live in a kind of age that represses speech or um, represses the expression of his ideas, no matter how controversial they are. As people have become tight-lipped, Dave sort of jettisons those norms and those social mores or whatever. Um, and that's a kind of brazenness or a courage or whatever that I guess the general audience member themselves would like to adopt or they would like themselves to be able to do, uh, but for whatever reason, feel the social pressure not to. And so this is kind of vicarious living through Dave, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, if I recall, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder if I don't, I don't think that Dave Chappelle should by any means be compared to Donald Trump, but I think <laughs> a lot of people. I mean, that seems like a reason why Donald Trump has been in many ways uncancelable, uncancelable because so many people view him as this heroic uh, figure who's capable of saying what's on their minds and so they're they're just not going to let him get out of the the public picture another paper that uh, you cited on dave Chappelle was from eliza wisner or wisner and it's called why do you feel guilty for loving dave Chappelle?" do you recall what what the what the overall message of that one was yeah so there the idea is sort of again there's a there's this thing, sort of the the public or whatever, where there's sort of expectations <coughs> that we've built up for civil speech, um, but that you're sort of pressured to go along with the, the crowd or whatever. Um, and what Chappelle does is buck against that trend. So he rejects the pressures of the the mass or the 
the social pressures that attempt to make you conform to this uh, thing that you think everybody's supposed to conform to and shows us a way out of that sort of trap or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the general gist of the argument. And returning to your work for a moment, one of my good friends, his name is Donovan Strong O'Donnell. He's a stand-up comedian in Chicago. And he was just in, in a roast battle uh, a week or so ago. And my friends and I saw some of his jokes beforehand. And reading them out of context, is it's just like painful. They're funny, but they're so offensive. And you mentioned uh, with regard to your thesis that one of the reasons you were looking at or one of the ways in which you were looking at slurs was how they function in these different contexts. And roasting, even within comedy, is a very specific context. And yeah. you, you wrote a paper on roasting ethics. Yeah. How, did you, how did you go about looking at the ethics of roasting? Because I imagine it's just, it's such a particular... <laughs> universe to be in where you're sort of invited to be offensive but at the same time everything we've been raised not to be offensive and you don't want to push the lines but you also have to entertain people you don't really hope presumably like want to hurt someone uh, but there are all sorts of these conflicting pressures on you as a performer so how did you go about studying the ethics of roasting well, I suppose I looked at what I take to be two different styles of roasting or two different contexts for roasting. So there's the, sort of, I guess, the institutionalized or formal setting. That's, you can, that's represented uh, in, yeah, in like those Comedy Central roasts or the, uh, the, the Friars Club something like that or <clears throat> those roasts that uh who is it like dean martin and don rickles and all those people used to host uh, that were televised like in their 70s i think so these are basically the sort of ceremonial um honorings essentially of the roasty mm-hmm. and so that kind of thing is incongruous because the it's a basically a ceremony to honor somebody, but the the way you honor them is through insult. Yeah. Right? So there's this yeah, kind yeah. of weird juxtaposition of the two. Yeah. Um, but that framing or that context sort of trains the audience for how you relate to it or interpret what's happening there, right? So you go in knowing that this is an honor ceremony. And that typically the nastier the jokes are, the high, the more highly regarded the roasty is. And so it's one of those things where the milder the jokes are, you get the sense that this person just isn't really worthy of being roasted. Right? Um, so there's this kind of weird play going on yeah, there. Yeah. And again, I think it also touches on this idea right, that, yeah, so normally, outside of this context, insults are basically um, things we guard ourselves against. And they're 
understood as a tax. But in this context of honoring, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you understand them differently. They they are they lose their threat. Then they're roast outside of that context. They're kind of these informal contexts. Yeah, like with your friends, maybe. I hadn't been thinking about that at all. Yeah. Right. So this sort of interpersonal stuff, or this one-sided stuff. And so there was a this internet, uh, this person, this internet personality, who posted roasts, and posted videos of them of themselves uh, roasting passersby in various public spots, like in a mall or something like that. Like, yeah, these are insults, but it's quite clear this is not an honoring ceremony, right? It's basically using someone else as an object of amusement so that produces so that the the primary relationship is is between the roaster and the audience whereas in the former context the primary relationship is between the roaster and the roastee and the audience is sort of an onlooker Mm um so in the former context you might think well the rules that sort of apply there are going to be different than the ones that apply in the informal context. Because in the informal context, the person being roasted doesn't really sign up for that. Amongst friends, it might be it might be sort of different from that, right? Because you are kind of signing up with one another and it's a, a way of building camaraderie or strengthening a relationship or demonstrating the strength of the relationship, something like that. That's just really another form of play. I mean, I- Have you, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I, think about roasting in that context between friends. Um, so my friends and I used to do this when I, when I was younger, uh, sometimes still with a lot of friends. Uh, we used to also sometimes uh, do this thing called slap boxing, which is like, you know, boxing, but you know, mm-hmm. slaps. Right? So again, a kind of play. Yeah, there's a parallel. You have to fill it out because sometimes you can slap a little too hard and then moves from play to personal, when it moves to personal, then you know you've kind of broken the play frame. But those, I think, are dynamic rules. There's never sort of a concrete or static set of rules that govern the the play itself. It's always sort of dynamic and on the move. Yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe that answers the natural question that I had, which was you said that sort of the more highly regarded or highly esteemed the roasty is in this formal setting, the more nasty or raunchy or offensive the jokes can be. Yeah. Is there a way of saying without getting into particulars, like where the limit is? Or did you answer me already by saying it? It's dynamic, it's on the fly. You can't really tell maybe until you're there. Mm. So I want to suggest that I think usually it's not really about the content of the joke itself, that it has more to do with the relationship between uh, the parties engaged. Okay. So part of what I think made those, like those 70s roasts or the the Friars Club roasts or... um, some of the Comedy Central roasts successful, right? Um, is that the people involved basically knew enough about one another that they knew 
which topics or which lines were too far and which ones weren't. Um, so I, it's in a way, it's really difficult to tell where the lines are if you don't know the persons involved. If, if you have sort of a less intimate relation with the person you're roasting. Because mm-hmm. um, I think to be an effective roaster usually means that you have to know a fair amount about the person you're roasting in order to know which sorts of top, what sorts, what sorts of topics or subjects um, sort of get to the heart of the matter, but without also going beyond the boundaries that presumably many of us all have. We all have some sort of boundary that we don't want a person mm-hmm. to go beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of a fluid kind of thing that it sort of just depends on the individuals and what the roasters know about those individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, continuing with this line of ethics and moving a bit beyond race and sex, another paper that you cited is Ted Nanicelli's moderate comic immoralism and the genetic genetic approach to the ethical criticism of art. And that raises two immediate questions for me. First because I I haven't heard of the, heard this um, phrase before, but what is the genetic approach to the ethical criticism of art? What does that mean? Yeah. So, (coughs) excuse me. I think Ted there's starting with an approach that, basically looks to the generating or motivating uh, factors for evaluating some piece or some art object. And so usually the ethics looks basically at that. So if you identify the sort of unsavory element, motivating element, that allows you to say something about the morality of the... So two pieces created in two identical pieces created in different contexts for different reasons could have different, um, you could evaluate them differently morally based on this um, genetic history of the art. That's right. That's interesting. Cause I guess we haven't talked about comedy as art, but do you think of comedy as art then? Is that the, the relevance between citing this paper and uh, what we've been talking about? I do. I do. Um, so, one of, yeah, so I do think of it as art because I think of it as an aesthetic object. I think it's the kind of object meant to produce a certain kind of experience that often relies on perception, as you say. So, uh, it's a way of perceiving items that are arranged in particular sorts of ways uh, that draw on language, on um, images or um, symbols that have to be arranged in a certain sort of way to provoke a certain kind of response or experience in an audience. And that seems to be consistent with the way we think about a lot of art objects right so um visual works um music etc right so uh it seems to be consistent with that so yeah 
no, that makes sense. That account humor is similar. Yeah, we we just tend to think when we use the word art, we tend to think of art objects as opposed to arts of action, which I learned about from talking with C.T. Wynn, who works on aesthetics at the yeah. University of Utah. And do you recall yeah. the what? what moderate, moderate comic immoralism is, what that, if that's a position or a view, what it is. Yeah. Comic immoralism basically is roughly the idea that immoral elements can enhance the funniness of humor over humor object. Hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. So do you, basically... yeah, go ahead. Okay, so yeah, basically, you know, uh, naughtiness basically is more arousing, and arousal, you would think, plays a role in how amusing we find something. And so, the stuff that approaches naughtiness tend to find funnier than, let's say, morally safe humor that um, sort of mainstream tries not to offend anyone. Um, that stuff seems to be more banal, more trivial, or whatever. Uh, we find the stuff that's more edgy. We gravitate towards the stuff that's more edgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another s- scholar you've cited on this topic is Noel Carroll. Does Noel Carroll have a particular position on the ethics of comedy? Yeah, uh, Carroll isn't what we call a moderate. moderate comic moralist and the oh, idea, so it's sort of the opposite yeah um yeah in some ways it is so that's a weaker position than what he calls uh comic ethicism so ethicism basically is a view that immoral elements always count against the human mm-hmm. moderate comic moralism various types but generally it's the idea that uh, more objects can count against, not necessarily that it does, but it can count against uh, an op- humor object's funniness, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Carol basically engages us in an interesting way where, well, for some immoral objects, they tend to produce in audiences um, what's known as imaginative resistance. Right? So there, there are some imaginative asks that are made of us that we just can't find ourselves accommodating. Right? Um, and so in those instances, the inclusion of an immoral element in some humorous object basically makes it, uh, makes it that we can't find it amusing, essentially. Well, another thread that I found particularly curious in the works you've cited is in your course on humor, you watch the horror movie Midsummer. Yeah. Which I saw that in theaters and I like that movie a lot. But what I recall quite vividly about watching that movie was just how powerful and painful and terrifying the movie's opening sequences, which I, I won't spoil for anybody who hasn't seen it. But 
I was when I saw that on the syllabus, I was immediately just like taken aback. What does this have to do with a class on humor? And then I saw that afterwards you you cite a, a paper by Noel Carroll on horror and humor. So one, I guess, where does Midsummer fit in to the curriculum here, and where does Noel's Noel's view on on horror and humor fit in? Yeah, so here basically we're we're thinking about the relationship between horror and humor. So Noel has this paper on horror and humor where, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the idea is that well actually these two things are kind of related in a interesting sort of way. Where so horror is basically constructed around this figure, the monster. Okay. Whereas humor is usually constructed around this figure of the clown. Yeah. But if you think about how easily it is to turn clowns into monsters, and so think of it, for example, where <laughs> yeah, the yeah. monster is represented as a Yeah. So they seem to be basically two figures uh, of the same coin. And mm-hmm. depending on how the, the story of the, the object is constructed, the figure can either turn into this monstrous thing that provokes fear or this sort of clownish figure that provokes amusement. And there's kind of a, a hair's breadth uh, divide between them. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the clown and the monster being close causes. And you mentioned it because I don't know if you're aware of it. So Pennywise the Clown is the name of the clown in it. And he is in Stephen King's universe. I'm not sure if he uses these words, but an emotion vampire. So he feeds off of the, he literally feeds off of the fear of the creatures, uh, of not of the creatures, but of the, of his victims. But, and this is what I I think you might not know, is that in another work of Stephen King's, The Dark Tower, you meet Pennywise the Clown's brother. And Pennywise the Clown's brother is also an emotion vampire, but he feeds off of the laughs of his victims. So he he makes them, like, laugh themselves to death. So that is kind of a, a funny connection there between the clown and the monster. Are there other horror movies that you can think of where you connect the, the humor to the monster in a way? I mean, one thing that comes to mind right now that's in the zeitgeist is that movie Megan, which I haven't seen yet, but I have seen this clip over and over where Megan is doing this dance before she murders someone. And I think people like the dance because it's funny. Uh, so it it is fascinating. There's a much deeper connection there. And there are these sort of fusion genres of horror and humor. Uh, horror and humor. Um, so one film that I wanted to show my class, but I just couldn't find it anywhere uh, to show them. It's this Korean film called the uh, The Silent Family, which is basically this kind of mashup where there's basically this, this family who owns a it's a vacation lodge in this like 
woodsy uh, area. And so there are a lot of jokes written into it, but it also basically revolves around this family killing guests and stuff like that. So it's kind of horror element to it too. Um, but you see this kind of the the way that these two things fit, these two themes fit fit together in the film. They fit quite naturally. The horror, the horror, and the humor. And I think this is sort of a thing we see across a lot of, for example, horror films themselves, right? So some of the later uh, Nightmare on Elm Streets, for example, incorporated a lot of humor in them. Uh, they wrote a lot of jokes, written a lot of jokes, wrote a lot of jokes into the, the script, right? Yeah. Or uh, what makes it possible for something like a uh, scary movie. This is a yeah, that's perfect. comedy, right? But it basically is playing on horror. It's like a, a parody of horror films. Right? Um, but again, that transition is quite easy. I think it's quite easy because the, the figures of the monster and the clown are so close together that it doesn't take very much to change your perspective to see the clown as the monster or the monster as the clown. Mm-hmm. My favorite movie in this scary movie vein, though it's not slapstick, is Cabin in the Woods, which blends the humor element quite nicely with the horror. I love that movie. It's so inventive. Another aspect of comedy that we haven't touched on, and I'm not sure if where I'm going to go and what you've cited is what I had in mind, but humor is very much a way in which people bond. So, I mean, you mentioned like the roasting with your friends, uh, the slap boxing. And in your course, you also, you watch a comedy special from, I think an Australian comedian, Hannah Gadsby, and the special is called Nanette. And then the reason that I assume that these are connected is that you also cite a paper about it by Sheila Linto called Connection Through Comedy. Is that... Am I sort of on the uh, right track of why why this special in particular was relevant to the course for that reason? Well, the, this special came at the point where we were talking about the limits of satire, basically. Okay. And some of the thoughts that people have around the power of satire and comedy to produce positive or progressive change in the audience. And I think Gatsby is quite skeptical about satire and and comedy's ability to do that. Um, So the the special on that (coughs) was interesting um, because she basically challenges humor's ability to be a progressive change agent because of the way that comedians have to conduct themselves in order to get the principal thing, which is the laugh. So she basically tells us about the instructions of some of her jokes where she had to leave out important details that the joke were based on, um, that if she included them, they would undercut the humor. Hmm. Um, but At that the expense seems to be the, of being more, of pushing a more progressive um, right. narrative. Got it. That's right. Right. And so 
I think Hammond's line was something like, well, you're always in the position of making these choices about cuts. Um, and usually the thing you have to cut is the thing that's principally important. You have to uh, um, dampen or somehow shield or cover those important things, the things that uh, you want to highlight, right, when you are, I don't know, advocating for progressive change. Right? So one uh, example is where she tells this joke about being in a bar. Um, so Hannah is a lesbian. She saw a woman at the bar. She started hitting on her. Her boyfriend, uh, this woman's boyfriend walks up, is upset. And then Hannah says, then he recognizes that she's a woman and then apologizes profusely. And so the joke's built around that. What she said she had to leave out, though, was that the boyfriend came back, found her outside, and beat her up, and, and basically pummeled her. Right? Um, she felt like, well, that seems to be an important part of the story, yeah. but I had to leave that out because if I told that, then you wouldn't be laughing. Um, and so she was like, well, yeah, you're always making those choices. And so the comedian is basically in service of of the laugh. And so that's just sort of antithetical to uh, pushing or advocating progressive change or something like that. So the comedy and the progressive change are always going to be intention. And right. because the comedian is committed to the laugh, that's their job. That's what draws the audience. Um, the satire is always going to be limited. I see. That's right. Something else that, that is quite topical recently or right now is chat GPT. And yeah. I think it's, it's probably going to be related to your work just because, I mean, so for instance, my, my dad was experimenting with chat GPT. I haven't used it yet, but my dad like asked it, he was trying to, break it as i'm sure many people are trying to find something that it that it uh couldn't do and yeah. he asked it to write a this a sestina which is a very sort of obscure poetic form that has very specific i mean uh, syllables per line a rhyme scheme etc about his son at stanford and to make it comedic. And in like 30 seconds, it has a Sestina about me uh, that is fairly funny. I mean, it's not a Dave Chappelle special, but that makes me wonder about AI and intelligence. And you, you cited a paper by a philosopher, I think, Simon Critchley, on yeah. is humor human? Is there a connection here? What I guess maybe that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the with rats, apes, and other animals. Maybe that's what the focus of this paper was. But does it connect at all to artificial intelligence? Someone doesn't particularly talk about AI in that chapter. It is really about uh, some of the claims around human being a distinctively human thing and then raising considerations that might cause us to rethink that mostly around non-human animals. 
but it is a good question, right? Whether or not something like uh, ChatGPT could produce as a joke, um, should we count that as an instance of humor? People find it funny. And it might also cause us to rethink some of our, our theories of humor itself. Right? Because yeah. There, Especially there with the genetic that, theory that we were talking about. I mean, there, there is no sort of mind that's going in. There, no moral charge to the context that it's, in which it's created, exactly. for one. Exactly. I mean, you, you might try to... So one thing you could do right, is try to give this kind of indirect view where, well, still, the, <coughs> the, the chat itself isn't self-generating. Uh, it had to be constructed by human agents. And so maybe it's, yeah, the explicit joke, let's say, let's, let's, let's suppose that the chat GPT uh, produces a sexist joke. That's what you feed into it, and it kicks out. Um, so if you think that there's something about human intentions or whatever that has to be involved in motivating the act, it seems difficult to describe the joke itself as morally salient um, because it's this I don't know, it was an algorithm or something that kicks out these lines. Uh, drawing uh, my impression that it draws from databases that sort of call from various statements or whatever that exists in the, the cloud. Um, so in a sense, it's drawing on stuff that human beings have done, but it's a machine that's producing it. And so a machine's moral agents doesn't quite seem that way, at least typically wouldn't think that. Um, so what do we say about that? Jumping back to the comedians, to um, Dave Chappelle in particular, I think a lot of, I hear at least a lot of comedians on podcasts, et cetera, lamenting that they can't like go to colleges anymore to perform there because the audiences get too worked up and really offended. Parenthetically, I think this is something that Jerry Seinfeld has said, which yeah. is somewhat surprising because I don't think of his humor as being particularly <laughs> offensive at all in fact it's some of the the least offensive humor i can think of but yeah. it looks like you've done some thinking and researching researching on this topic and is there much philosophical significance to this to this issue about audiences being easily offended well let's see so there's a there's a philosopher philip dean who's written some about this who's written this, who has this article about basic audience sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Which is a quite interesting article. So it basically raises questions about, hmm, well, it basically looks at this charge, right, that people like Seinfeld or Chris Rock have made about college audiences in particular that, they're overly sensitive or PC, the PC crowd is another kind of chart. And that Dean explores, I think, some interesting questions about, okay, well, what might this charge amount to? 
And I think it's sort of also interesting to think about, you know, what the claim itself amounts to, given that, well, comedians are basically in the business of entertaining audiences. And it just seems like a very strange uh, complaint to raise that you present something to an audience and the audience doesn't like it or rejects it, and you blame the audience for rejecting it as opposed to reevaluating the thing that you present. Um, So there's a kind of, I think there there are two considerations involved. And so there's one about the sensitivity of the audience, but there's also a question about the sensitivity of comedians, Mm -hmm. whether or not comedians themselves are overly sensitive to criticism or critique from audiences or from bloggers or whatever. Yeah, that's a fascinating dichotomy there. Or hypocrisy. Yeah. And it can be, right, that, uh, well, at least we can ask the question about whether or not uh, audiences are always mm, properly attuned to the the human object, to the thing itself in a way that puts them in a good position to judge its, say, aesthetic quality, its its musingness or whatever. Um, I don't think that's uh, an unreasonable question. But I also don't think it should be the default either that we should think that, well, anytime a comedian generates controversy over some special whatever, we should automatically run to the question, well, is the audience overly sensitive? Because if it's a kind of Mm -hmm. widespread response or reaction, it might be with the with the routine and with the joke or whatever. Mm-hmm. So one of one of the last things I wanted to talk about, I've as I've got more philosophical training, I've realized just how important it is for any philosopher to be engaged with subjects and and departments outside of philosophy. So. A philosophy, a philosopher of language, for instance, is often working with linguists, philosophy of mind, neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, etc. And I'm curious about where your work in the philosophy of humor interacts with other disciplines in the academy. And I know that's such a, a silly, whenever people refer to the academy, I kind of roll my eyes, but I'm just going to get used to it. So are you working at all with cognitive scientists or linguists or psychologists. I mean, there's so, I mean, political science, history, <laughs> cultural studies, there are so many places I can see intersections yeah. with your work. Are there the any in particular? Find, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I find most interesting about humor is that it has tentacles, like these far ranging, uh, wide ranging tentacles that reach into like basically everything. Um, so there are a number of places where, uh, I can find connection. Um, right now, I've just started um, <coughs> uh, this project uh, collaboration with a media psychologist. Oh, that's right. That's cool. We're going to look at um, satire, satires. Um, you know, it's a kind of question around the limits of satire and 
and how satire can be useful in you know projects of social change. Or something. Um, one of the things I'm excited about for this this kind of thing right, is that it's going to force me to not look at concrete practices and think about okay, what can the theoretical stuff do on the ground, and how should I adjust my theoretical thinking when when it connects with the practical? Because um, usually that's not a thing that philosophers tend to think about or pay much attention to. Yeah, but very important if 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 philosophers and I think they should be. I think philosophers should be uh, very relevant to the everyday world. I think I mean that's probably how philosophy got its start is trying to live a better life. So that's awesome that that you're getting uh, down to the ground. I uh, I talked to Jonathan Schaffer recently from yeah. Rutgers, and he's been working with cognitive scientists to figure out where in metaphysical arguments when we're citing intuitions we're actually citing the wrong intuitions i mean people don't actually have them and so it'll be cool to hear how your work might change after working with this media psychologist to maybe you find out that humor isn't actually working uh in real people the way you've been theorizing it to work yeah that's the thing i'm most excited about it is so I have like a kind of observer view of stuff, audiences when I go to comedy clubs or comedy shows, mm-hmm. or my own sort of, I guess, introspective experiences when I watch something. Yeah. Um, but it's a different thing when you start looking at the patterns as they emerge in very specific media instances. And in many ways, uh, doing the research that you've done in ways you can't predict or maybe even introspect has changed the way that you experience comedy. And you might now have a very different way of looking at it than, I mean, you certainly do than the average person. So that's, that's important. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, well, the last thing that we haven't talked about yet is that you have an upcoming book, uh, the ethics of racial humor. So when that comes out, you're going to have to let me know so that I could mention it on the podcast and people can get it. But are there any topics of interest in the book that we haven't gotten to today that we might touch on briefly? Yeah, I think there's one thing that we haven't touched on that's in the book. And it basically has to do with this distinction between laughing with and laughing at. Okay. So basically this has to do with you know, power, power relations, and the kinds of things we put up as objects of amusement. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so the chapter itself focuses on um, white consumption of black humor. But it can be generalized in a particular sort of way because it, again, is looking at this dimension, this distinction between laughing with and laughing at and what kinds of things have to be true of a consumer of humor where the topic or the subject is about experiences of groups, people groups, social groups that you're not self a member of and what you're responding to. So what are you laughing at when you're laughing Um, and how are you interpreting that thing that you're laughing, laughing at or whatever. And 
So in the chapter, I'm trying to, again, tease out the role of the imagination and imagine the play at work in our engagement with humor. Um, part of what got me thinking about this were some reviews around, uh, so there's this novel by Paul Beatty, uh, The Sellout. Uh, I don't know if you know this one. <clears throat> won the Man Booker Prize for it. So it's basically, so Paul Beatty's a satirist and he writes about race in, in the U.S. He's an African-American um, and he satirizes race and he satirizes the racial attitudes of basically um, all racial groups in the United States. And he kind of subjects our, uh, what we take as um, uh, these, I guess, standards or norms, and he like pokes at them. Okay. He's also quite explicit or deliberate in, folk, I guess, presenting a kind, a particular sort of Black American perspective. Uh, without signposting or without providing a kind of interpretation manual for non-Black readers. And so I read some reviews by various people. So there's um, so one writer, there's a white woman who wrote that in reading the book, she felt kind of guiltiness about reading it and finding it funny. Because um, when he produced it and it's meant to be read by a wide audience, so it's not like this thing that's restrictive and supposed to be only for black readers. Um, so she's felt like on the one hand, she's invited to engage with that. But also on the other, that she's looking in from the outside on a situation that she's you know, giving up, I guess, a, a privileged view of. And she felt a kind of tension between that. And so she was basically asking a question about, you know, whether or not she should have views on the novel and stuff like that. Is also provoked by a show I, I went to in London, at the, at the comedy store in London, um, where there was a <coughs> um, performer on stage basically joking about her disabilities. And it raised the question, okay, I'm finding the jokes funny, but what am I finding funny? Am I laughing along with her or am I laughing at something? Yeah, that's, that's a question I'm going to be asking myself now. <laughs> So basically the chapter is an invitation to, and thinking about how we evaluate humor, part of it has to be turned inward as an evaluation of ourselves. Oftentimes when we talk about uh, some performance's value or its comedic value or whatever, we talk about the content or the presentation or the delivery of the performance, uh, what we often neglect. Uh, think the things about ourselves and our attitudes, the things that we bring to the table that are necessary for comedic for the success of a comedic performance. Um, because often it's playing on stuff that's already there in the audience. So that's how comedy works. Uh, you already have to kind of get the joke in order to find it funny. If it has to be explained to you, then it doesn't work. So we already have to bring something to the table. And so I'm asking the question about, well, what is it that we are bringing to the table, um, especially in those situations where we're engaging with topics uh, that have to do with experiences that we ourselves don't know, haven't experienced, or can't experience because we are 
members of a different social group. Well, on this note, are there any recent comedy specials that you're a big fan of, or are there any podcasts you've been listening to? This is just going to be good for my own inventory. Let's see. So there's one special I watched recently. It was a special about Ali Sadiq, this comedian. Um, it was a, basically a storyteller. Uh, it was a YouTube special. I forget the name of it. Um, but I found it really good. Uh, I think he's just a, he's a really great storyteller. Um, what else did I watch recently? So there's a special about Earthquake that I also found funny. Mm -hmm. I often find Cat Williams' specials funny. Mm. I haven't watched Trevor Noah's recent thing yet. I enjoyed his, the previous uh, specials. So I anticipate that this one will be equally good. Mm hmm. Mm. What else? Mm. Yeah, I guess for as far as I guess shows go, and again talking about sort of the fusions of different genres, Atlanta's writing the the, the writing on Atlanta I find always good. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of play between and uh, talking about the juxtaposition of horror and humor. I think Atlanta tends to do that very well. As uh, also, hmm. this all that comes to mind at the moment. All right. Well, Lavelle, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing your humor expertise with me and uh, my audience. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as i eat my pint of ice cream on twitch at robinson Earhart on robinson eats please do so <laughs>